Hello, I'm John Doyle. And I'm Sonia Missio. Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a soccer podcast from the Globe and Mail covering every angle of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Today we'll be discussing Canada's 2-1 loss to Morocco in their final game of the tournament and talking about the future of our national men's program. And later in the show, I'll be speaking with the great soccer writer, broadcaster and filmmaker Owen O'Callaghan about how the different geographical regions are faring at this World Cup and what that says about the state of international soccer. Okay, Sonia, Canada's World Cup is over, but the tournament isn't. Where do we stand now in the bigger picture? Well, at the time of this recording, the group stage is also almost over, which means 16 teams will be moving on, but 16 teams will be going home. John, I have a question for you. Do you know how many games are left to win in order for a country to win the World Cup? Four. It's simple math. And do you know how many games a team will have to lose in order to get out of the tournament? Well, that's pretty simple too, Sonia. One game and you're going home. So it's do or die. After the break, we'll go deeper on Canada's performance against Morocco and look ahead to the future of this team Canada. Well, Sonia, there are no kittens and rainbows at the World Cup. You don't get a prize. You don't win anything for participating. Canada's World Cup is over. Your thoughts on the game? There are a few positives to pull out of that game. They didn't lose the plot. They kept playing even after those two goals. And there's a reason why people say a 2 nothing lead is the most dangerous lead in soccer. Because teams can come back. And if you're sitting comfortably at that 2 nothing scoreline... You're going to start losing yourself. And I think Canada rose to that occasion and they they almost got it back. You know, that header by Atiba was literally millimeters off from being a tying goal. So credit's due where credit's due. I think Herdman realized his mistakes against Croatia. I think he reorganized for better or for worse. We can talk about, you know, some new mistakes he made in this game. But he reorganized and he put a different team forward and, you know, full accolades to him for that. Well, you can talk positives and I admire you for that. But some people will say, you know, what's the difference between a teabag and Canada's team at the World Cup? The teabag spends longer in the cup. (laughs) Sorry, I was not expecting that. Counterpoint to that, John, as I tend to do. I mean, for the casual fan, yeah, this World Cup hasn't been great. But this is also Herdman's worst run since he's become coach. This is just a sampling of what the team is. It is a very small window into how we've been playing. And there are so many factors that go into the World Cup. You know, we've talked about their inexperience. We've talked about how they were in a group that was very, very difficult to be in. And looking forward to 2026, I don't know how you're not excited for this team. Well, I would just be realistic, as is my my want in in these situations. This World Cup is not a motivational meeting for the next World Cup for Canada. I think the first half, uh, all of Herdman's tactical flaws and mistakes were on display. For a start, Alfonso was playing out of position. I think the entire team was unsettled during that first half. Whatever diagrams Herdman put on the board to let those players know where they were playing, how to cut off Morocco, none of them got it. None of them grasped it because they looked like a very unsettled team during the first half. 
But I don't think you walk away disappointed from this team. I think that our whole goal was to make it to Qatar. And Herdman did that. That's what he was set out to do. And he has said time and time again that he is focused on 2026. That is what he is looking forward to. And he's spoken to the media. I mean, if everything goes well with Canada soccer as well, that he's going to stay and lead that men's team. And I think that really is his focus. This is more of a tryout or or testing the field. And it's 2026 that we need to look ahead to. Well, I think we, you know, we can go into this a bit more in depth later, but I think it's time to reassess a lot of things about Canada soccer. Uh, there is, I think, a mentality that says we made it to this World Cup, we're co-hosting the next one, we can just keep doing the same thing. We can't. We need improvements. We have to look on winning. We have to look on scoring goals. We have to look at being competitive, not just nice and pleasant to watch. But John, we have improved. You and I have been at games when there are like 500 people in the South End and it has been dismal and that's being kind. Think about a game that we watched five, six, seven years ago and compare it to today. Are you, you don't think that's improvement as it is? We're not going to improve so far as in all of a sudden we're playing like Spain. We're playing like, I was going to say Germany, but you know, we're playing like those top teams. You talk improvement, but I would say the one main improvement is the emergence of Alfonso Davies. But I think there's something peculiar that surrounds the dynamic of Alfonso in the Canadian team right now. A thing I noticed watching the game on on TV here is that at halftime, the number of commercials that featured Alfonso was tremendous. And that tells you something. He's the focus of this team. Maybe he shouldn't be. Maybe there's something going on there. Maybe there is a gap between the rest of the team and Alfonso, not just in the level of skill, but in the way they approach teamwork in the way they uh, they interact with Herdman. You know, there's, there's something slightly off about a player of his quality looking out of sorts at a World Cup game. I mean, he's also 22 years old. I think there's been a lot of pressure put on him, and I don't think he, he can be compared to other world-class players just based on his age. He has had enormous pressure put on him in this World Cup. I think he's risen to the occasion as best he can. He scored Canada's first goal. He has been the player that kids are looking up to. He has done all that. It's unfair to put everything on his back and, and expect him to perform at this level of, of Messi or Ronaldo or any of those players who've been here, who've done that, who understands how the game, and I'm talking about the game outside the game, of course, how the game works. He's just not there yet. Going forward, I think, to use the business expression, um, I think we have to look at sophistication being brought to the tactics, to the training. Any country like Canada that exists inside CONCACAF and qualifies out of this region needs a shot, an injection of wisdom, of, uh, of guile, of canniness from other people from other places. Small soccer powers often do well because they bring in outsiders from outside. We need to see people from South America, people from North Africa, people from Europe having a role in how this Canadian men's team progresses because the best countries 
in playing soccer know it is about a culture and it's not just about the core group of players and the manager. I hope that Canada Soccer looks to broaden the training, uh, the tactics, broaden the picture for everybody involved with the Canada men's team before the next World Cup. I think it comes down to the CSA, Canada Soccer, needs more diversity. And they need to stop being this old boys club that I think they've been for many, many years and start getting new ideas, new ways of thinking, and new people into the organization. Well, they're not going to ask you and me to uh, play a role in that. So let's just hope that they bring in people who are smart about soccer from around the world. So if the CSA wants to hire me, I'm here. Well, Sonia, Canada's World Cup is over, but this tournament is really just heating up. To put the rest of the field in focus, including winners and mediocrities, I spoke with my friend and countryman, Ono Callahan. That's up after the break. Owen O'Callaghan has worked as a soccer journalist for a number of outlets, including the BBC, CBC and The Guardian. He was one of the original anchors of the Fox Soccer Report, and he has published a book about Manchester United's legendary former captain, Roy Keane. We discussed where the power lies in world soccer based on the results from the group stage, and of course we touched on our mutual suspicion of England. Owen, let's go around the various areas of the world and try to figure out what the state of world soccer is based on this World Cup so far. So let's start locally with CONCACAF, the North and Central American qualifying division. At this point, Canada is out, Mexico is out, the USA is still there. What a strange group. It's been difficult for CONCACAF, hasn't it? Obviously, on the Canada side of things, it's been underwhelming. Disappointing, maybe we were a little bit too overexcited in the build-up to the tournament. And Mexico, again, a team that was kind of in transition. A little bit of a reflection of qualification campaign, really. Um, But I think what we always have to get back to is there's a pedigree when it comes to World Cups. There's a way of getting out of group stages. And when teams have experienced it and, and gone through it, maybe once or twice, a handful of times even, you build up that strength of character. You know what needs to be done. And In the United States case... Resolute, solid, defensively cohesive, all of those ridiculous cliches. Is it fair to say now that actually Team USA is a surprise package at this stage, not Canada? I think they've come in with that side in the midst of a complete overhaul. There's no golden generation here. It's a lot of youngsters still building their careers, building their names for themselves. And... When it comes to World Cup tournaments, it's all about getting through a group stage because it's 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 a jeopardy type situation. You don't want to be like that, a high profile nation that's on the floor and thinking about what could have been. And ultimately, job well done for the US and they've got through knockout stages. Right. Let's move to the CAF, the Confederation of African Football. This is a very difficult division to qualify from with so many teams vying for a few spots. And there seems to be a continuous sense of disappointment that a team from Africa has never made it past the quarterfinals. So this time, who has impressed you from Africa? I like Ghana. I've always liked them going back a long time. So once we park that personal bias, um, you, you kind of have to look maybe you go back to Canada's group. 
look at a, a team like Morocco that probably came into this tournament as a, for maybe Canada fans, and then we'll face Morocco in the final game and get a win and everything would be great. And Morocco have been very strong, very sturdy, very impressive. And maybe a little bit of metaphor for the other African nations here, because I think if you break it down per confederation, the African teams have really outperformed their counterparts. You're always cautiously optimistic. Maybe you could get a team that reaches the final four. Maybe you're going to have uh, one of those little magic moments like a Cameroon 1990 and everybody falls in love and it's a very romantic story. Um, but there's also that part of your brain that reverts to other knockout round games where like that, they've got the better of themselves in terms of emotions. It hasn't been controlled. They've lost run of themselves technically, positionally. They've made some individual errors and it kind of all falls apart. You're right that, that African teams are all often underrated at a World Cup. You mentioned Cameroon at Italian 90 opened the eyes of the world to a style of football that had never really been seen on a World Cup stage. Ghana against Uruguay at the World Cup in South Africa. They provide something special. Yeah, I mean, you need those types of stories. And and I guess what you're waiting for is, is to, to move the story on from an African perspective and that the, the focus doesn't just become about environment, but it also becomes about performance. Potentially, this is a tournament where, where you can get one of those teams getting through to to a Final Four. I had a conversation with, with a friend of mine recently. He immediately rubbished me as uh, not knowing what I was talking about. And it was a little bit too wide-eyed and innocent for him, optimistic maybe. But you never know. It's a World Cup. And based on group stage performances so far, African countries have stood up and they've been excellent. Okie dokie. Let's look at the teams that qualified from AFC, the Asian Football Confederation. In the complicated way that FIFA organizes things, that means Iran, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Japan and Australia all came from this pool. That's quite the mixture of teams in terms of skill, in terms of success. Owen, my friend, does everything depend on these national teams having players play at the top level in Europe? This is an interesting one because I think when you've got these Asian teams competing, they always have the handful of players that are household names and the focus always goes on them. Uh, But in saying that, my analysis of of Asian sides have always been technically very, very impressive. Uh, And I think that comes back to to having a kind of a wealth of very experienced coaches that that normally are there monitoring things. And it's it's been the case this this time too. And and even you mentioned Asian and how peculiar it is. Australia are now part of Asian qualifying. And there is a, a, a perfect story. And I think maybe even Canada could take a little bit from Australia's story in this tournament where they know their limitations. Yeah, aesthetically, it's not the most pleasing, but technically, tactically, they know what they're doing. In a group stage, you get your results, you make sure that you're still in the hunt, maybe going into that last game, and then because of a team spirit and maybe a sense of of mentality, maybe, yeah, you know that you don't have the superstars, so it, it does certainly have to be a group effort and they get over the line. And that's a really, really impressive performance from from Australia. You look at where those players are playing. A lot of players playing for more, the more maybe unfashionable teams in Scotland. Uh, a couple of players still in the A-League in Australia. And then a, kind of a, a motley crew of other players like sp- sprinkled all around the world. And I think you bring it back to those 
vital ingredients of any World Cup team. Spirit, togetherness, strength, bit of momentum, and anything is likely to happen at that point. All right, let's move to South America. Before this tournament, as usual, the bookies' favourites, Argentina, Brazil. Now, how do you look at the teams from South America? Are are they as strong as Western European countries? We'll get to that that crowd in a minute. But are they that good? It's it's a tough one. Everyone tipping Brazil before this tournament immediately set off alarm bells for me. I'm like... I don't like all of this focus on Brazil. It's uncomfortable. But then my mind went back to 2002 when it was a little bit similar. They had a a glittering array of stars and a lot of people were tipping them for the tournament. And then they went and won the tournament and pretty easily too. Uh, Made Germany look very average in a final. Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo. It was just a free-for-all. And yeah, they've got the superstars here. They're, they've got the luxury that Neymar misses a couple of games. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they, they're scoring some wonderful goals. Uh, but still, there's a part to me that, that wonders uh, if, if everything is going to fall perfectly into place. And on the other side of that, Argentina, I think we just saw a couple of holes in the group stage with Argentina. Uh, I think that um, when they're good, they're very good. But when it's not going to plan things can start unravelling. And the absolute adrenaline of South American football is a a complete pleasure. But on the other side of that, if things aren't going to plan, (laughs) it can be absolutely drowning to be a part of that, dealing with that pressure and dealing with the spotlight being on you so much. So it it would be interesting to see if Brazil were faced with a little bit more of a challenge, what the reaction is going to be. And, you know... World Cups are, are weird things. Teams start to pick up a bit of momentum. Argentina now face into, I guess, a relatively comfortable looking knockout round clash against Poland. So like that, probably Argentina in a quarter final. And then, you know, at, at that point, well, of course, they're part of the conversation about winning this tournament overall. Uh, but other than that, Uruguay have been disappointing. Uruguay have looked a little bit leggy, a little bit aging. And I think they've they've struggled in, in, in that group early on. But let's talk maybe about Ecuador for a little bit, how unfortunate Ecuador were. Again, you they, mentioned they the, played beautifully. And and the, brought that sense games. of yeah, they did, urgency they did have and that colour. South American flair, that touch football. They always taking the second stroke on the ball, savouring the game. Yes, Ecuador was was a team to really enjoy. And also usually when you pick up four points in a group stage it's enough to kind of see you through to that knockout round. So a a little bit unfortunate that they didn't squeeze through. Um, Will there be a champion from South America in this World Cup? I guess as as we get further into things and as Brazil look a little bit ominous, they've got such strength of depth. You look at the players that they left out of their squad, even ahead of this tournament, it's, it's astonishing. But... I don't know. I think there's some more twists and turns left in this tournament. And and I, I wonder, I just wonder if it's going to be a team from South America after all. That's a handy way to take us over to Europe. So <laughs> who, Owen, who among the European countries is going to take Argentina or Brazil apart? That's an extremely good question. 
because oh, speculate, speculate. You, you, well, you struggle, don't you? I mean, it's 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 hard. You, you look even at at the heavyweights who have been disappointing. You look at the dark horses, Denmark, for goodness' sake, who look like they just didn't even want to be there. It's like they, you know, somebody said to me uh, after they were eliminated, maybe this was their form of a protest when they got to Qatar. Um, I thought it was pretty nice. Um, Denmark were very very poor to watch. Portugal have their own issues. Ronaldo trying to steal every goal that's going. Uh, I think he's just one moment away from you know a towering header from a centre back and him running off to the corner flag celebrating. Didn't anybody see my touch? Um, I'm going to tell Piers Morgan otherwise. And could it possibly be John Doyle that we're sitting here and England could smuggle their way through to the latter stages of a tournament? Well, before we dig a little deeper into England, uh, there's something I have to do. Bottom kind of skill got fund on Oh, kinche. As Corkig, a tattoo fan, as as Tiberdorn, a Tommy fan, and Fiakanish. Here we are. What I said was, uh, I'm going to speak in the Irish language for a. For a minute, uh, Owen is from Cork. I'm from Tipperary, and look at us sitting in Canada, drilling deep into the old enemy, England. There they are now, the lads, having a chat about the old English. Okay, let's talk about England. Um, overrated, I would say. Um, the USA put a halt to their gallop. Uh, England walked over Wales, but. In the name of God, Wales is a country that's barely bigger than the size of Garrett Bale's man bun. And they acted like they were world champions already. Wales were awful. Uh, They really were. Uh, And you looked at that squad, you think, wow, it it is sometimes a miracle that certain teams qualify for a World Cup to begin with. Garrett Sokit has has binned his waistcoat. We speculated as to whether or not the waistcoat had magical powers, and we shall wait uh, to see. Well, I'll tell you who doesn't have magical powers, and that's Harry Kane, who is not. I mean, some people had him up for the golden boot at this World Cup, and what's he doing? Kane and not able. As it turns out. That's a religious reference, by the way. I know, look, it's Global Mail and I need to be impartial, but I had to drop at least one religious reference into this podcast. I am Irish, after all. Uh, you're um, welcome to it. Now, um, I feel a bit sorry for Gareth Oakett because what you always try to do as England coaches is balance the hysteria of expectation with also kind of slipping into a tournament and, and, and trying to just go about your business. And I thought he kind of achieved that. And, and yet they obviously had a, a poor run in towards the tournament. And again, you probably look at the fact that England will reach quarterfinals at least. Uh, I'm sure Harry Kane will get that monkey off his back. I'm sure he will start scoring a couple of goals. And uh, the mind does go back to the last World Cup when we did sit, I do believe it was Football Factory, watching a semi-final uh, with England and Croatia. And guys at the end of that game coming over to us and saying, after Croatia won, now lads, you did deserve it thinking that the two of us were Croatian fans because of how incredibly passionate we were about England not making it to a World Cup final. Um, so perhaps there will be another moment when England reach uh, a semi-final situation and we will get together and watch that praying, uh, taking the rosary beads out and uh, doing a novena to make sure that England don't get to a World Cup final. We shall see. Um, they've got such a bunch of talented players and then 
they kind of don't. It's a it's a weird thing. I mean, Harry Maguire, I guess, typifies that. The likes of Jordan Henderson kind of typifies that, where occasionally it's kind of workmanlike, and 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 you're you're you obviously have a sense of individual brilliance with some of those players, but it, is it enough? And when you get into that latter stage, do they have, I guess, enough savvy? Uh, when faced with, with difficult situations, you mentioned about uh, how the US handled them for for large por- portions of that game, and it, it was it was difficult and, and and it was it was tough, and we didn't really see much of a response from England, and and maybe that says it all, and um, that that when they are faced with with a, a kind of a difficult encounter, will they have enough to to get over a line? Thank you, Owen O'Callaghan. Okay, Sonia. We're on to the round of 16, the knockout stages. It's one and you're out if you lose. Looking at the next batch of games, what's one that really sticks out for you in terms of something you anticipate, something you savor? Pick one. Well, John, maybe this is the conca calf in me coming up, but I'm really interested in the Netherlands-USA game. Um, I think... The USA, as much as I both hate to admit it and also feel like I was right from the beginning, um, has sort of been the dark horse in this tournament. You know, they had a decent performance in the group. Um, The team itself seems to be really gelling well as an overall team. I think despite maybe some technical or tactical missteps that they've had, the team as a whole has been really, really fun to watch and really great to look at. Um, Netherlands, you know, they've missed out on quite a few big tournaments. It's sort of like their second coming. They're trying to reestablish themselves on the world stage. So they're coming at this from a different angle. And I just think this game is going to really set the pace and, you know, be one of the more interesting matches in the round of 16. What about you? Well, picking up on the thread that Ona Kalla and I started, I'm looking at England, Senegal. I actually got a, a text from a friend of mine this morning saying, do you want to go see England lose to Senegal? (laughs) And my friend who texted me is an Englishman. I think that says a lot. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Game. This episode was produced by Kyle Fulton with editorial assistance from Jamie Ross. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. All the music you heard on the podcast was composed and performed by Sean Robolacon. Thank you to Owen O'Callaghan for joining us. You can find Ahead of the Game wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and share it with a soccer fan in your life. We'll be back on Tuesday, December 6th, discussing all the madness from the round of 16. Until then, you can follow our soccer coverage at theglobeandmail.com.